$200 trillion of financial contracts and securities are tied to LIBOR, and that matters to everyone. Small businesses, corporations, banks, dealers, and investors. At SIFMA's 2018 annual meeting, we had two discussions dedicated solely to the transition from LIBOR to alternative reference rates. Here, Sandy O'Connor and David Bowman discuss how the Alternative Reference Rates Committee of the Federal Reserve, known as ARC, is leading the U.S. transition to a secured overnight financing rate, or SOFR. Sandy is the Chief Regulatory Affairs Officer for J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and Chair of the ARC. She also serves on SIFMA's Board of Directors and is Chair of our global affiliate, GFMA. David is a Senior Advisor at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System and is the Senior Staff Liaison to the ARC. Their conversation is moderated by Randy Snook. Maybe to level set a little bit, uh, you, know, you know, why are we here and you know, why is this kind of collectively important to the range of members that we have in the room? Well, why we're here is a little ex existential, but let's start with why we're going to talk about um, LIBOR. So I guess in, um, firstly, I too would like to acknowledge, you know, David's work. He and I have been um, partners in this effort, and, and we represent the public-private partnership that is the Alternative Reference Rate Committee. Why we're here today is, you know, back in 2014, um, the Financial Stability Board um, recognized the secular decline as it was occurring in the LIBOR markets. And, and the reality is, you know, due to changing regulatory environment, um, changing risk appetite for banking institutions in buying and selling funding between and among themselves in the short end of the market, all of a sudden you saw that the, the trans number of transactions that actually are occurring in the short end market decline um, precipitously. So on average, um, for U.S. dollars, you only have about $500 million worth of trades on a given day and about five to seven actual transactions. And you think about this as an inverted triangle. Those transactions are used as the basis to, um, to be referenced in contracts totaling over $200 trillion. Um, and the reality is, you know, over time, the panel banks that are, are submitting into this benchmark um, have moved to um, expert judgment because of such a fundamental lack of actual transactions. And therein is the stability risk, right? It, you, can't, you can't be surprised if panel banks that are submitting into this benchmark are becoming less and less comfortable with submitting into it. Um, and, and the reality, therefore, is, okay, we need to find an alternative. So back in 2014, the FSB charged um, the derivatives houses just to come up with an alternative that could be used to replace LIBOR. And that effort, um, or I should say, not replace LIBOR, but rather an alternative to be used um, to transition to. Um, for derivatives markets, and so the work began. And where the work began was, again, focused on what's an alternative rate, what would be a transition plan that could be used on a voluntary basis that was fit for purpose to encourage um, take-up, and then ultimately, um, what would, you know, how do we ensure that there was contract robustness? So in fact, everything had been forward-looking and for use in derivatives. And that's sort of how the journey began. So, you know, just taking that point uh, a little bit further, um, you know, why now do we have a sense of urgency around this? 
And maybe, you know, I think it would be helpful for the, you know, audience uh, to better understand the risks and, you know, why collectively uh, we need to have a sense of urgency around this issue. Okay. So while, again, the, the initial approach was creating an alternative, um, last year in 2017, Andrew Bailey, who heads up the Financial Conduct Authority, made very clear that he had been exerting quite a bit of, of influence over the submitting banks to ensure that they would continue to submit through 2021 to create a level of stability that LIBOR could continue to be produced. That said, even over the last few years, you know, two U.S. dollar panel banks have stopped submitting. Um, and he made very clear in 2017, after the end of 2021, he would no longer use his ability to compel um, um, institutions to continue. And as a result, um, he put a line in the sand that at the end of that point in time, there is a risk that the production of LIBOR could in fact cease. And if you look at the world that we live in and the contracts that are referencing LIBOR, you've got derivatives contracts, which are the vast majority of those referencing. So, so let's say of that 200 trillion, 190 trillion, but you also have $10 trillion worth of floating rate notes and corporate loans and retail mortgages and securitizations and credit card receivables. And, and the existing contract language in legacy contracts, for the most part, doesn't really contemplate a permanent secession of LIBOR. And, and where it does have something, it may not be necessarily economically appropriate. And so, since these contracts don't contemplate the permanent secession, just think of what might happen if when we come in on January 1st, 2021, if LIBOR is no longer available, the uncertainty around the cash flows and the value of interest payments would be extraordinary. So time is of the essence, why? Because we have a line in the sand. Two, if LIBOR ceases, we need to now make sure that legacy contracts have adequate fallback language to address the risks so that there is no uncertainty of how cash flows will in fact um, occur. Thank you, I think that's a good uh, point just to really emphasize with uh, this audience as you begin to look at this issue, um, which is that the existing language, and we'll talk more about this in a second, the existing language in derivative contracts and securities and floating rate notes loan agreements didn't contemplate this possibility, the possibility for a permanent cessation in LIBOR. David, anything else you would add to that uh, point? No, I mean, this is the reason that the FSOC and FSB has pointed to this as a financial stability risk, a key one, since 2014. Um, essentially, we have a massive amount of fairly poorly written contracts all on a potentially unstable rate. And if people keep doing what they're doing right now, and LIBOR stops, it will not be a good day for you or for the U.S. financial system. So people do need to look at how they can change their behavior. And I guess I would point out, too, that you know, Andrew Bailey in 2017, he didn't say that LIBOR would stop, mm -mm. right? He said it was uncertain what would happen. But this year, what he said is you should assume that it will stop. Again, he's not guaranteeing it, but he's advising you to assume that it will stop. You know, and I think for most of you, if there was a banking regulator who said, assume that Bank X is going to go into default, 
you would start, you know, you'd take out your uninsured deposits. This would cause a real sense of urgency amongst you. And I think if a regulator says, you know, of the benchmark says, assume this benchmark's going to stop, we all need to take it very seriously. Yeah, I think, you know, An Andrew's um, his statement was, don't consider this a black swan event, right? I mean, he laid it out for you, and he says, think about whoever your constituency is. You know, this has been really well advertised. And by the way, it's still 2018, and it's still a few years away. So there is actually no excuse for not being prepared for it. So now I want to maybe turn, uh, that's a good point, because the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, um, our Fed-sponsored you know, pu public-private partnership has you know, a big role in really helping the industry, helping us all uh, increase our level of preparedness and make sure our, our markets and our infrastructure are more resilient. Uh, I'd like to turn to that now and that preparation that's happening with uh, in the arc. And maybe Sandy, you could kind of kick that off and just sort of give us a sense for. Um, I guess job one was identifying SOFR as the um, best rate uh, or the optimal rate uh, in the U.S. But maybe you could talk about that and then some of the next steps. Sure. Um, so, so there's ARC 1.0 and ARC 2.0, so let's start at ARC 1.0. Um, you know, in order to begin to address the financial stability um, risk, job one was you needed an alternative to actually begin using as a potential replacement. So uh, most of the work of ARC 1.1 was very much focused on what would be a usable benchmark. Um, and, you know, actually both of the alternatives that the ARC ultimately considered and then selected, you know, SOFR as being uh, the best choice, the, the construct didn't even exist before, which is pretty extraordinary, right? So, so think about this. There was not a rate available that could be referenced. So, in fact, you know, the, the ARC basically decided ultimately that it wanted to look for a repo rate that was, was, was deep in volume, IOSCO compliant, um, you know, representative of where financing could occur in the overnight market, and SOFR is just that rate. So SOFR is comprised of GCF repo, bilateral that's cleared through FIC, um, and tri-party uh, treasury repo. And it's even better, it's not a rate that is, that is submitted by panel institutions, it's a rate that's actually collect, uh, uh, calculated each day and administered by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So you've got, and the, and the transaction volumes are enormous, because again, the key of a successful benchmark, um, one that is IOSCO compliant, is that it's predominantly transaction-based, so judgment's not involved. Remember that risk that I was referring to up front. So on a daily basis, on average, this new SOFA rate, which was just born in April or begin being produced in April, um, has about $750 billion worth of transactions every single day. That's an enormous amount. In fact, one would argue it's the deepest, most liquid benchmark on the planet right now, which is pretty, which is pretty extraordinary. Part of the arc, then, once you had this rate that could be usable, the focus on a transition plan was how to build up liquidity in the derivatives market so that the marketplace could become familiar with it and understand how activity ultimately could, could be hedged. And we are very much in the middle of this, this transition plan, and I'm sure we'll get to some questions around that as well. And then lastly, as I mentioned, um, contract robustness, and in fact, um, the ARC has issued, um, and, it's, and it's available you know, off of the website, guiding principles 
on new contract language um, for, for uh, appropriately using SOFR and potential fallbacks that could be used in it. All right, so that's a good uh, segue because there, there are a couple parts uh, to this, and I think you know, having a new rate to reference SOFR, that's a critically important thing to us. But I just want to make sure that we highlight the distinctions between you know, better fallback language that takes advantage of the fact that we have a better and a robust reference right now, mm -hmm. and also the trend uh, to actually moving to and using that new rate. Maybe, David, do you want to just talk a little bit about fallbacks and why that's important? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of what the ARC has to do, first of all, we now have the rate. We have to move new issuance to it. But the second thing we have to do and are beginning to address is we have to stop the bleeding around LIBOR. I mean, if we look around all the firms in this table, probably a number of your firms wrote LIBOR contracts today. And the odds are that the contract language was not really what you would want it to be. And we need to stop that bleeding. Um, one, because it just makes sense. Two, because the sooner you do that, you know, if LIBOR does stop or say is found to be non-representative in 2022, the sooner you better start having better contract language or the sooner you start trading SOFR and stop trading LIBOR, the much better position you're going to be in, the much safer your firm is going to be in, the much safer the US economy is going to be in. So the ARC this year, um, in addition to do all the work in promoting SOFR, um, has put an awful lot of time into developing right now its first two consultations mm -hmm. on safer contract language for floating rate notes and syndicated loans. And we'll come out with other consultations for bilateral loans and securitizations later this year. But the goal was by the end of this year, um, or early next, for the ARC to recommend, recommend truly robust language. Uh, so that if you're intent on continuing to use LIBOR, you can at least have language that's going to protect yourself if LIBOR stops. So these are two consultations that are out. They put a ton of time into them. Mm -hmm. um, and we would love your input. Um, if you go to the ARC's website, you'll find the two consultations. Please read them. Please think about them. Please think about the contract language that you have in right now and see where it's deficient. And you could use the ARC's language. You could take part of it. But please have better language than you do now. So that's key on the ARC's part. The other thing that there's another consultation out that you should be looking at, and that's a consultation by ISDA for derivatives. Now, right now, those are for some other LIBOR currencies. It's not for US dollar LIBOR. Nonetheless, it's important that people read and reply to those consultations. There are a few questions about US dollar LIBOR. Now, as Sandy said, there's about 190 trillion of the 200 trillion of US dollar LIBOR is in derivatives. So your exposure there in gross notional terms is massive. And if LIBOR stops, you will care about that gross notional exposure. And the language for derivatives is perhaps the weakest in that if LIBOR stops, um, you know, you're required to phone some banks and ask them to quote you a rate. It's very unlikely that they do quote you a rate in the current environment. If they don't, the ISTA definitions tell you nothing about what your derivative is to pay or receive. So you're looking at a situation where you will not know the value of your LIBOR derivative. Nobody on the earth could tell you what the value of that thing is unless you sign the ISDA protocol, unless you incorporate better definitions that actually allow you to value that derivative. So the ISDA work is key, um, and how it interacts with the ARC's recommendations for cash products is also going to be really key. So 
Either you can stop using LIBOR, which I hope that many of you begin to consider doing, or if you're going to, then for sure you've got to have better, better language in your contracts. And replying to ISDA and to the ARC you know, is just going to be crucial for that. David, let me just ask you to amplify on one point that I think the audience may benefit from hearing, uh, which is the, the con these consultations, as you said, with ISDA, it's for non-dollar derivatives. We have the consultations on floating rate notes and loans. Uh, just, I think it'd be helpful to speak to sort of the importance of consistency uh, and trying, you know, we'd like everyone to be cognizant of these issues and these consultations, but it's the consistency issue in particular. Can you maybe just speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, if you read the ISTA consultation and read the ARC ones, you notice that um, they really strive to be consistent. The ARC is really striven to be consistent with ISDA. But there are some areas where they're not, and those are areas that the industry needs to debate, and it will be key things that we are looking for people to give us feedback on. You know, are there areas where it be, you would be willing to deviate from what ISDA does with derivatives? And there could be. So um, for right now, the ISDA derivatives will only trigger if LIBOR stops. And there's a public announcement by the administrator or um, the public sector that LIBOR has stopped, permanently or indefinitely. But as we know from Andy Bailey's speech, you know, there is um, a real risk that um, LIBOR could be found to be non-representative by FCA as its regulator. Now that would, doesn't necessarily mean that LIBOR is going to stop. But it, what at the very minimum what it would mean is that EU supervised entities would not be able to trade most new um, LIBOR derivatives or new LIBOR debt, right? So, you know, EU supervised entities include LCH. They include, you know, almost half of the market that you might trade with. It would be very disruptive. And so for the ARC, they've had to deal with this. You know, even if the derivatives don't trigger in that event, would we want a cash product to trigger? Um, or could we work with ISDA to include this kind of trigger there? So there's this uh, constant back and forth about what do we do that's best for cash products and how do we try to do that while trying to stay as close to what's going to happen to derivatives? And it's really important to get people's feedback on, are you willing to deviate? You know, is it important that whatever is true for cash products is also true for derivatives? And there's just going to be a continuing dialogue on that. Yeah. I think that's, those are all good points. Just sensitive to the time. I don't want to just flip uh, gears slightly. Um, but I think, you know, the imperative uh, in the marketplace is that we collectively begin uh, ensuring that we have robust fallback language. Mm -hmm. But now I want to talk, turn to the future state when we reference, we use uh, SOFR and other alternative reference rates going forward. The ARC has done a lot of work to ensure the, what I'll call the foundational elements are in place uh, to begin doing that. Sandy, maybe you can talk about the PACE transition plan and some of the key milestones that are part of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So remember, what we're doing here is trying to, one, build a new market, um, and then two, address the weaknesses from a financial stability perspective if LIBOR stops so that we don't have a financial stability risk. So with regard to setting up the new market, and that's really what the PACE transition is very much about. You have the rate, check. Secondly, starting to build liquidity in the derivatives. So you would have seen the month after the rate was launched, um, CME launched their one and three month futures contracts that were linked to SOFR. Subsequently, we've got you know, LCH, which has begun trading basis swaps. And in fact, today, CME 
launched their basis swaps. And what's also a little bit different here is not only do we see some of it trading already, um, and, and David, I, David and I are always watching very carefully, that in fact, the discounting rate and the price-aligned interest rate tied on the contracts that are trading today on CME are referencing SOFR as well. So as we set out the pace transition, it wasn't just about building liquidity, but it was also about trying to embed demand. And if you look across the CCPs, you can embed demand ultimately by moving discounting rates and the price-aligned interest to this new SOFA rate. So we are well on our way. And this, and this component, while we don't have everybody yet doing it because people are at different stages of implementations across the CCPs, this delivery is actually over a year ahead of schedule, which is really important given that deadline that we're talking about in 2021. And what else, is, what else has been happening? Around this, you will have seen there are issuers that are out there that are now tying their notes to SOFR, with the first one, the premier issue, being from Fannie Mae, and it was a $6 billion issue across a variety, three tranches out to 18 months. That's also going to build demand, not only for hedging, um, but it also shows, and I want to say this, it's really important, not only did Fannie issue, but what happens when someone issues? Someone's buying. So you actually have now investors trying to build um, understanding and willingness to engage into this brand new marketplace. So that's very much about you know, pacing the transition, building liquidity, and gaining familiarity. Now, the more that actually trades, the better a look we're also going to get into what does the term structure of rates ultimately look, at, look like. And that's important for some participants in the cash market as well. And sooner is, is, is better than later. And I think for this room, um, and, and I know David would agree with me on this, the key is for every firm out there to really seriously consider now beginning to engage in this marketplace, ensuring that you are up and running, you can launch SOFR as a new product, but also understanding that embedded likely into your systems, you've got LIBOR reference for valuations, and how do you begin thinking about that? The reality is no one should be a bystander, and we can't wait for other people to take care of building this market. It's really about how do we solve this problem collectively because it's in our best interest, and the key isn't waiting to the last minute, because that won't work, or we won't have addressed the financial stability risks that, that every member of the ARC is so concerned about. Perfect, thank you. Uh, maybe, David, I'm sensitive to the time that we have with the audience today, but I just thought, Sandy, your points, I think, on um, some of those foundational elements are really important, uh, and in particular, thinking about the issuance, the investors that are buying the issuance, the market making that's now happening in the issuance, uh, what's happening globally? Any, David, can you share with us some perspective on what's happening outside of the U.S. just to help the audience understand some of the other jurisdictions? Sure. Well, the good news or bad news is we're not alone. Um, there are five LIBOR currencies, and there's Euribor and Tibor. Um, we are, the official sector is in close communication, and Sandy, I think, now regularly talks to the other um, heads of the other currency groups in the other jurisdictions. Um, like the ARC, um, out of necessity, they have all chosen overnight rates. Some of them are unsecured, um, and some of them, like the U.S., are secured. But the secured versus unsecured isn't really all that big an economic difference. It's really that they've chosen overnight rates, and overnight rates are basically nearly risk-free. Mm -hmm. So they've all done that. 
Um, some of them, like in Sterling, already have, they've chosen Sonia, and there already is a Sonia curve, so they don't have to build that out. But they do have to do all of the other hard work. So, you know, they had the EIB issued their first Sonia bond, mm -hmm. I guess in June or May. Mm -hmm. You know, and everyone looked up, and that was quite exciting. So we challenged the ARC to do that. And I think it's possible that we had, there may be SOFR floating rate debt out there than Sterling at the moment. Mm -hmm. So in terms of getting cash markets to move, um, they're in exactly the same place. You know, the Swiss um, have a new rate. They have to build a curve for that. Um, their monetary policy is linked to Swiss franc LIBOR. So they have lots of complicated things to work through. Um, the Japanese are perhaps in a somewhat safer place in that they have some confidence that TIBOR could be around for a while. And so they are thinking about ways to transition, but in some ways they may not be as urgent. And then the Europeans, the euro area, is maybe the most interesting. Um, so for a long time, they believed that Ionia was you know, the rate that uh, their alternative. And um, uh, I think they had some hope that Euribor would remain stable. And there's no statement that Euribor is not stable. But um, they learned that Ionian was not as robust as they hoped it would be. And so there, um, the administrator of Ionia has already said that they won't apply for authorization. So Ionia is already not going to be, non -rep not going to be representative. And so they're having to move at a quite accelerated timeline now to meet, to meet their challenges. Thank you. I think we have time for one last question. And Sandy, I want to ask you, what, what can we collectively be doing to build more awareness, thinking about the fact that all of our clients, or many of our clients, are impacted by this risk, uh, certainly a large number of them with significant exposures, uh, in addition to uh, our members themselves. But what can we be doing? What should we be doing to encourage uh, use and to be building more awareness? Yeah, no, a couple things. One, um, the ARC in and of itself publishes minutes regularly, and we've been, you know, putting those consultations out publicly. We've had um, three roundtables, we've published two reports, um, and clearly organizations like SIFMA are deeply engaged in the education process. So there, there are resources um, um, certainly available. I think very important to note, and, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, um, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, as we work through these issues, the focus is on delivering uh, a, a solution to the financial stability risk for all market participants. And as a result, the membership that is sitting around the table, um, as well as the working groups, which are much broader, represent segments across all components of financial markets. So we've got corporate treasurers, insurance companies, banking institutions, derivatives houses, as experts in mortgages, SIFMA sits on the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, because our objective is to go broad and wide and getting feedback and understanding, because that's what the solution is that we are trying to create. And on the ex officio side, we have 10 ex officio members from the, from, from the public sector front from the Bureau of Consumer and uh, the Consumer Finance Bureau, as well as uh, Fannie Mae, as well as um, the, the 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 New York Fed, etc., and the U.S. Treasury, and the CFTC, and the SEC, and the OCC, and the FDIC. Everyone is so. I mean, that was a big list, right? I mean, that's, that's how focused we all are on trying to deliver something of value. And back to the comments that David made, in the fallback of contract language, you know, understanding the triggers, 
Making sure we all know what they look like should the market event occur is foundational. And then if fallback language is necessary to be relied upon, ensuring that there is you know, minimization of any value transfer. This is not meant to create windfalls. This is about finding an appropriate solution. And to avoid all that, just start trading the new stuff. And the last piece that I will say on this is, when we did the analysis starting in 2016, right, 82% of all contracts referencing LIBOR would mature by 2021. So every day that passes, we can be doing new contracts tied to this new rate and minimizing the tail risk, a nice gentle transition. Every day we don't do that is higher tail risk and higher risks around the potential I have to go to fallbacks. That's perfect. And I think it's a great uh, point to end on in terms of making sure we don't magnify the problem and make mm -hmm. it bigger. So I want to thank the audience. And Sandy, thank you. David, thank you. This was a terrific, terrific discussion. Thank you. Thanks. For more on the transition to alternative reference rates, visit newyorkfed.org slash ARC or sifma.org slash alternative reference rates.